Welcome to the Hope Collective Message Podcast, where we find a confident expectation of a better tomorrow in the character and promises of God. To learn more about who we are, visit thehopeco.com. Here's today's message. Good morning, everybody. No pressure, boss. Thanks. (laughs) Hey, really excited. Uh, that we get to have this conversation this morning as we come to the end of our first part of a series in 1 John. Uh, Thank you so much, Bobby. We've been in 1 John for eight weeks. Uh, We are coming to the end of chapter one. (laughs) So we're going to come back uh, to 1 John this summer, Uh, but really glad because we're continuing to go through this together because we believe that John has something really, really important and really critical for us to hear. A timely reminder for a season in our life and in our church where we need to grasp these truths. So really excited uh, to be able to give the last message in this series. Before we move into the next series, it's going to start next week. There's three things that you're going to need this morning as we dig into this conversation. First, you're going to need a Bible. So if you have one, go ahead and get it out. If it's on your phone, you can open the app. Or if you don't have one, you can grab one on the shelves behind you. If you're online, you can go ahead and open the Bible tab on the church online platform. But you're going to need a Bible this morning because we're going to be jumping around in the first chapter of 1 John and the second chapter, kind of going back and forth between those two. So that's the first thing you're going to need. The second thing you're going to need is something to take notes with. So whether you're using your phone or the message notes in front of you, go ahead and get something to take notes with. You're going to need a Bible. You're going to need something to take notes with. And you're going to need a willingness to continue the conversation after this message is over. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. And there's going to be this temptation where you're going to want to do something about everything that you hear. And if you try to do something about everything, you end up doing nothing, right? So there may be something that God kind of brings to your attention today. And you can't let that stay in this room. That's why we want you to be in community because the things that we hear in this space that we believe we come to bring something to God. We come to glorify him. We come to honor him. We bring our hurts. We bring our joys. We bring all of that to God. And then we also believe that God has something to give to us in these moments. But it's not something that we're meant to leave at the door when we leave. It's something we take into our communities to say, here's what God is saying. And I think he's asking me to do something about it. And then we come around one another to help one another do that. So we're going to need scripture, something to take notes with, and a willingness to continue the conversation after this morning is over, because we believe that God has something in store for us, each of us and all of us together. So as you have that thing that you're taking notes on, whether that's your phone or a piece of paper, I want to give you a question that I want you to answer, but I don't want you to think too hard about it. So I'm going to ask a question, and I want you to write down your blink, just the first thing that comes to your mind, okay? Don't, no edits, no anything like that, just the first thing that comes to mind. So here's that question. Who do you know that you know knows God? All right? Who do you know that you know knows God? Who is a person in your life that you have had interaction with that you were like, when I think of somebody and I'm like, that's a person who's got it figured out. That's somebody who knows how to follow Jesus. Who is that person? I want you to write that down. Don't think too hard about it. Just the first thing that comes to mind. Go ahead and write that person down. Who do you know that you know 
knows God. And now I'm going to ask you a second question. And I don't want you to write down the answer to this one. You might not be able to write down an answer to this one, but I want you to be thinking about your response to this question as we go along in this message. And the question is this. How do you know that that person knows God? How do you know that that person knows God? What's the evidence? What's the proof? What's the thing that is true about that person that when you think about the person who's got it figured out, who's following Jesus, that person, what is it about them that made you write their name down? Of all the people you know, this is someone that you said, this is somebody who's got it figured out. These two questions and how we respond to them are the questions that we need to keep in mind as we move into this next section of 1 John. Last week, Pastor Dave kind of gave us a recap of where we've been so far in this first chapter of 1 John. He talked about this foundational verse that we're given in chapter 1, verse 5. This is what you have heard from the beginning, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That was excellent. Great job, everyone. This is what's at the foundation of what John is communicating, that from the beginning we have heard this message, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And from that foundation, there is an application that we're supposed to make. If God is light and in him is no darkness at all, we are to walk in the light. We are to conduct ourselves in a way that honors and reflects and expresses that light that is God. So if that's the foundation, there's an application, and then Dave moved into simplification, where we are to walk in the light, and we also can't claim that we are without sin. So that's where we've been so far. We have a foundation, we have application, we have simplification, lots of cations, okay? I have one more cation for us. Is that all right? Even if it's not, I, this is what I prepared, so we've got the cation. What are the implications of this? So if God is light, which John says, if you're going to get anything, this is what you need to know. After 70, 80, 90 years of his relationship with Jesus, this is what I want to make sure that you walk out of here with, is that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If that is true, then the way that we apply that is by walking in the light, but we also can't boil this all down and try to deceive ourselves into thinking that we're gonna be without sin. So what are the implications of that? There are three questions that John is gonna address. Questions that are implied by everything that he's said so far that we need to have in the back of our minds as we move into 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. We're gonna read it in just a moment, but here's those three questions. What do we do with the presence of sin? As followers of Jesus, who follow a God who is light and in whom there is no darkness, that we want to live like, but we know that we can't claim that we are without sin, what do we do with the presence of sin in our lives? And then how do we know that we know God? So if the first question is what do we do with the presence of sin? The second question is how do we know that we know God? And the third question John anticipates is, but no, really. How do we know that we know God? 
These are the three questions that I want us all to have in mind as we go into 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. I'm actually going to invite everybody to stand as we honor God's word and the reading. We believe that this is the most important thing that we will hear today, is these six verses that God spoke through John thousands of years ago, but still ring true in human history because this is the word of an unchanging and eternal God speaking to the people that he knows and loves. And so we read in 1 John chapter 2, My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Heavenly Father, Son of God and Holy Spirit, we need you. We believe that you have spoken and you have spoken because there is something that we need to hear that John is trying to tell us. And so we pray that you would open our hearts and our ears and our minds and give us the clarity we need to hear your voice. But more than that, God, give us the courage to do anything and everything that you would ask us to do when we leave these doors today. And thank you that we do not have to do this alone, that you have given us in addition to your word and in addition to an invitation into the mission you're on, you have given us a group of people to do this thing with. And we are grateful. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. So the three questions that John has kind of teed us up for throughout chapter one, what do we do with the presence of sin in our life? How do we know that we know God? And, and really, but really, John, how do we know that we know God? Up till now, the tone of First John. John has been using these really strong words and these very stark contrasts. He's talking about light and dark and truth and lies and how do we really know God? And he's using this strong language because he wants us to be a strong people. And there's this challenge that he's bringing because if there is no challenge, there is no change. And he knows that there is something more that God has in store for the people that are reading this book. But now in verse two or chapter two, verse one, there's this shift in tone. And he begins this verse by saying, my dear children, this is a term of endearment. John is 70, 80, 90 years old, and he's writing to this network of house churches in this region of the world called Ephesus. And these aren't just like people he's heard of. This isn't an open letter to whoever wants to read it. This is a heartfelt letter to people that he may have helped start these churches. He's been pastoring and ministering to them for decades potentially. And now when he's used all of these strong words and stark contrasts, he begins chapter two almost as if he's getting down on his knees in front of his child 
and looking them in the eyes and grabbing their hands and saying, I need you to get this. This matters and you matter. And I don't want you to miss this because I care about you. And if you miss this, you're missing something huge. Now, up until this point, these first 10 verses of First John, he's been talking a lot about sin and how sin is this thing that Jesus came to remedy. And, and if we don't say we have sin, then Jesus actually has nothing for us. Jesus himself said, I've come into the world to save sinners, which means if you're not a sinner, Jesus doesn't have anything for you. And so he says, Jesus came into the world. This light came into the darkness to deal with sin. And so we're supposed to walk in that light, but we can't claim to be without sin. So if sin is still going to be part of our Christian experience, what do we do with it? How do we handle the presence of sin in our Christian experience? Because here's what typically happens is one of two things result. And scripture talks about this in other places. Paul talks about it. It's mentioned in other places in the gospels as well. But there's this idea that if sin is still a part of our lives, people tend to do one of two things. The first is just take it as a license. Like, well, if sin is going to be part of it, then I guess I just get to stop trying. I can just sin as much as I want because I'm, I'm not going to be perfect. So I don't have to worry about it, right? There's this aspect of license that people take with the presence of sin, or there's this aspect of despair that people take. Of man, God is so good and I am so not. And I get it wrong all the time and the weight of the guilt and the shame is just crushing and I can't get out from under it. People tend to fall in one of those two camps with the presence of sin in our lives as well. I guess it's a license to sin or I guess it just has to crush me. And what's interesting to me is that we don't take our sins and mistakes and allow that to impact any other relationship in our lives, except our relationship with God. And this picture came to mind as we were preparing. So, pastor, I've officiated weddings before. You guys have been to weddings before, I'm sure. And here, here's what I have yet to experience in a wedding ceremony, right? I have yet to be standing up there and have the bride and the groom get to the part in the ceremony where they're saying their vows. And the bride looks her husband to be in the eyes and says, honey, you are the best thing that has ever happened to me. My life is different and better because you're in it. And I will never be worthy of your love. And I know that I'm going to fail you. I know that I'm going to make mistakes. And because I know I will never be perfect, I vow to not try. <laughs> Knowing that I cannot attain this perfect record of righteousness, I vow to just not respect you and not love you and not honor you at all till all the days of our lives that we're together. It's not going to happen, right? What also doesn't happen is the groom, when it comes time to say his vows, doesn't look his wife in the eyes and say, his wife to be, and say, honey, you were the best thing that's ever happened to me. My life is better because you're in it. And knowing that I will never be perfect for you, I will never be worthy of your love, I vow to live under a cloud of despair and self-loathing <laughs> and allow it to crush me every day of our lives because I will never measure up for as long as we both shall live. Okay, good luck, guys. Uh, you may kiss each other, I guess. Like, that's not, I'm not officiated that wedding. I hope you've never been to that wedding. We don't do that to any other one of our relationships except our relationship with God. 
where we say my imperfection and my inability to honor the love that you have for me will either give me full license to do whatever I want or drive me into such a pit of despair because I know I'm never going to measure up. That's what's causing John to get down on his knees and grab the hands of his readers and look them in the eyes and say, don't miss what I'm about to tell you because it doesn't have to be like that. There's a different way to do this and I don't want you to miss it. He says, my dear children, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. But we have to have another conversation first about when John uses this word sin, what is he actually talking about? And we've used this word several times over the course of this series, and there can be a lot of misunderstanding about what it is. So if you're taking notes, this is what I want you to write down. What is sin? Sin is a posture of the heart that rejects or ignores God and expresses itself in how we live. Let me say that again. Sin is a posture of the heart that rejects or ignores God and expresses itself in how we live. Sin is not just something that exists out here in the way that we behave. It's actually something that exists in here, in the stance we take towards God, to reject him and ignore him, to think that we know best, and then to live from that place. And if we're paying attention, John has actually teed us up to have an understanding of sin in that way. If we back up a few verses in chapter one, verse eight, John says, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. Sin is something we can have. It's something we can possess. It's something that's inside of us. It's something that's a part of us. It's something that we own. If we say we have no sin, we're fooling ourselves. But then two verses later, in verse 10, he says, if we claim we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in us. So sin is not just something that we can own. It's also something that we do. There's this dual part of sin where it's something that is internal. It's a posture we take towards God and it's something that it's external. It's actions that we take towards others. And so there's these two dimensions to this where there is an impression of sin that expresses itself in how we treat God and others. There is a source in our hearts of sinfulness that then overflows in the way that we interact with the world. And when John says, I am writing so that you may not sin, he's not saying, I am writing so that you can just take care of the stuff that's out here. I am writing so that you will be excellent behavioral managers. I am writing so that you're going to fix all the things that you're doing, but not actually experience any change in here. That's like taking care, like picking up a mop and mopping a flooded floor when you haven't turned off the faucet that's, co that's covering the floor and water in the first place. John is saying, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, but he's not saying I'm writing those things so that you will focus on your behavior only and try to make God happy with the things that you do, which by the way, you can keep six out of the 10 commandments and still have a heart that is a million miles away from God. That's right. 
It's not just the things we do. It's what's going on in here. What posture have we taken towards God that leads us to reject him and ignore him and expresses itself in the way that we treat God and other people? And so when John says, I am writing these things so that you may not sin, what he's saying is I'm writing these things so that your heart will no longer think the only option is to take a posture towards God that rejects and ignores him. I am writing these things so that you will know how good God is. I am writing these things so that you will have an encounter with the God in who is light and in whom is no darkness at all. I am writing these things so you will know the goodness of God so that instead of rejecting and ignoring him, you will embrace and obey him. And by the way, that's going to change the way you treat people. I am writing these things so that you will not sin. Lest we think that the only options we have is to have a license to sin or to resign ourselves to self-condemnation, John says there's something different happening here. I'm writing these things so that you fall deeper in love with Jesus and it changes the way you treat people. But what do we do with the fact that sin is still present? That we're still gonna make those mistakes? that there will still be these moments where we choose to reject or ignore God even as we are learning to follow Jesus. A disciple is a learner. That's what it means, which implies that you're not gonna do it right the first time because you're not a master, you're a learner. So what do we do with the presence of sin? How do we handle the fact that even as followers of Jesus, we are still going to make these mistakes? John continues. I'm writing this to to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. John knows that his readers and us today are going to be having these questions of like, okay, what do I do with sin? Okay, I'm not just supposed to do license for it. I'm supposed to fall more in love with Jesus and God because he's that good and that's going to change me, but I'm still going to make mistakes. So what do I do? And John says, you trust the fact that it's already covered. Even if you do sin, we have an advocate. We have someone who steps into the courtroom of God under which we have fallen under the just judgment of God's goodness and his glory. We have an advocate who both had no sin and did not sin, who steps in on our behalf to say, your honor, my client is super guilty. Like, let's be honest about that. And I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to pay the penalty for that. And I'm actually going to work with my client to change them. I'm going to give them my righteousness. I'm going to give them my goodness. I'm going to take the record of righteousness that I have that you gave me, and I'm going to put it on them, and I'm going to shape them into my image. I'm going to take care of that. And so when that condemnation comes at us of why is sin so still present in our life, John says we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, but not only the advocate in the courtroom of God, but the sacrifice who takes care of every aspect of our sin. Because he goes on to say in verse two, he himself, Jesus, is the sacrifice that atones for our sins and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. John is a Jew. He's writing to a mostly Jewish audience who had this understanding of sin and sacrifice and the fact that one necessitated the other. The consequences of sin were death and separation, which means there was a sacrifice that had to be made in order to remedy this. 
in order to restore a relationship, to pay the penalty and remove the guilt. There was a sacrifice that had to be made. Imperfect sacrifices were made for thousands of years within the system that John grew up in until one step forward who had no sin and did not sin to offer himself as the final sacrifice. And John goes on to say he was the perfect sacrifice to bring atonement. And this is one of those Christian-y, Bible-y words that, okay, what does that even mean? Atonement. At one meant. To take two things that have become separated and bring them back together. At one meant. Atonement. This is reconciliation. Jesus as the perfect sacrifice brings us back into a right relationship with God. And John continues to say that this atoning sacrifice not only takes care of our sins, but the sins of the entire world. Now here's what John is not saying. John is not saying that everyone will be reconciled to God, whether they want to be or not. God is a gentleman. He does not force us into a relationship with himself. But the offer is there. And there is no limit to the number of people who can enter into that relationship. And this is important for John's audience because he's writing to them, again, they're dealing with this idea of what do I do with the fact that sin is still in my life and there seems to be so much of it and it's just all the time and I don't know what to do. And John says, listen, it's covered. Jesus is way more good than we are bad. And if you think that your sin is somehow too much for the all-creator God of the universe who gave his perfect son to live and die on your behalf so you could have abundant life forever. John says, listen, Jesus' sacrifice was enough to cover the sins of every person, every sin, throughout every period in human history. I think you're okay. You're gonna be all right. His grace is sufficient. His sacrifice was enough and so much more. So you don't have to worry about that. So what do we do with the presence of sin that still remains in our life? We consider it covered. We don't treat it as license to sin, but we don't crush ourselves under despair. We allow Jesus to step in and, and lift our eyes up from our sin and all the things that we're doing wrong to say, hey, I took care of it. Do you need to confess? Absolutely. Do you need to repent? Yeah because there's better life on the other side of this. And I'm inviting you into that. But don't let this condemn you. I took care of that. So let's have the rest of the conversation. Let's not get wrapped up here and cycle here. Let's keep moving forward into what I'm calling you into next. But all of this produces another question for John's audience. John has been placing a lot of focus on this idea of sin because it's something that we need to have a right understanding on. But when you take a focus of sin away, you have to ask the question, well, if that measuring stick no longer exists, if the presence or absence of sin in my life isn't how I know if I'm doing it right or not, then how do I know that I know God? If sin was present in my life before Jesus and sin will still be present in my life after Jesus, to some extent, how do I know that anything's changed? How do I know that something is actually different? How do I know that I'm winning? How do I know that this Jesus thing is, is, is working? 
And so John raises this question of how do we know that we know God? Which is the question that we asked earlier, but we directed it outside of ourselves. Who do you know that you know knows God? And how? And whoever you wrote on your piece of paper, this is not going to be a commentary on their spiritual life at all or whether or not they have an actual relationship with God. What, I, what we're curious about is the how. How do you know that they know God? And here's why. Because our pedestals reveal our measuring sticks. The people that we point to, to say they're the ones who have it figured out. They're the ones that are doing it right. The ones that we raise up to that level are the ones that we will look to to either strive to live up to that standard or thinking that we can never live up to that standard, we just give up. It's like, well, I can never be that. So why would I even bother? What was it that made you write that person down? Is it because they memorized scripture? Is it because they raised their hands in worship? Is it because they can speak from a stage or because they became a missionary or because they gave a bunch of money to the church? What was it inside of you that said they're the ones that figured this out? And here's how I know that. Because John's gonna call that into question. And the reason he does that for his audience is because, again, this was written, this book was written to a church that was in crisis because there were false teachers who were coming up and saying that this Jesus guy didn't know what he was talking about, wasn't really who he said he is, but God still exists and we know it because of what's happened to us. We have this special knowledge, this special teaching that God has revealed to us that you don't know, but we know that we know God because we have these secrets. Or we know that we know God because we've had these intense religious experiences, these kind of mystical, out-of-body, esoteric things that have happened to us, and we know that we know God because that was crazy. And so all of a sudden, you have this group of people in the church that are like, but how, how do we actually know anymore? How do I know that I know God and I'm not deceived like they're deceived? What standard am I working with anymore? And so John continues in verse three, he says, we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. And when John is talking about knowing God, he's not talking about knowing God like we would know somebody like from a distance. Like, oh yeah, I know the president or I know this person, this famous person, I know about them. He's not saying that. Saying you know that you know God, that you have an actual experience with God that you have had an encounter with the creator of the universe when you obey his commandments. What he's saying is that it is Im it's impossible. It is impossible to have an actual encounter with the all creator, all good God of the universe in whom there is only light and no darkness at all, who sent Jesus, his one and only son, perfect son, to live and die on our behalf, be resurrected to new life and offer that abundant life to us, starting now, continuing forever. It's impossible to know that God and for him to say, will you do this? And us to say, nah. <laughs> That's not how it works. To continue to allow your heart posture to only reject and ignore God means that you have not actually had an encounter with this God who invites you to embrace him and obey him because he is good. It is impossible to know that kind of God and to stay in that place. 
But John goes on to say, in verse 4, he says, If someone claims, I know God, and doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar. That was very clear, John. Thank you. That person is a liar, and they're not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. John is telling us the same thing in two different directions. If we, say, if we obey God, that proves that we love him. And if we love God, we're going to obey him. And he uses this word completely. And here's what we need to understand is completely does not mean perfectly. Completely does not mean all the time. And it's actually baked into how this word is used in the text. That it's this idea of if you step back from your life and you look at it on the whole, is it pointed and making progress in the right direction of obedience? Will you be able to look at the whole thing and say it was perfect? Absolutely not. But has something changed? If you were going this way, have you started to go this way? Are you getting a little closer to Jesus? Is your heart understanding him a little more? Is there change? Is there progress? Are you making movement in that direction? That's what it means to be completely loving God. Is that we are starting to make changes in our life because we are obeying his commandments. So if the first question that John anticipates for us is what do we do with the presence of sin in our life? And the second question is how do we know that we know God? The third question is, yeah, but really, John, how do we know that we know God? Okay, you said that you know that you love God when you obey his commandments. Like what, what commandments? Which ones? This is a big book. <laughs> There's lots of commandments in here. And if I'm going to wait till I finish this book until I can start like doing what God wants me to do, I'm in trouble. So what? How do I know that I know God? What commandments am I supposed to teach Jesus? If you had to sum this thing up. <laughs> what commandments are we talking about? Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your mind, all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Jesus sitting at the Last Supper with his disciples, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. The commandment that John has been teeing us up to look to as to whether or not we are actually living in the truth, living in the light that he's been talking about. That when we take away sin as a measuring stick and we look at the life of Jesus, verse six, like he says, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. And this word should isn't supposed to be a word that is a pointed pressure on us. It's like, well, you ought to live like Jesus did. Well, you should be living like Jesus did. It's less the pressure and more of just the proof. It's very logical. It's very matter of fact. It's like, well, it, you know somebody is living in God when they live like Jesus. It's like, well, you know someone's a good teacher when their students are learning. Well, you know it's a good steak when it's a good cut, well-seasoned, well-prepared. <laughs> like th this is, yeah, those who say they live in God should live like Jesus did. But what does that mean? That means to love 
people like Jesus has loved us. And so John has taken away and really put his finger on the destructiveness of how we measure our Christian life against one another, against ourselves, and against these ideas of perfection that we have in our minds that Jesus says, I took care of that. So let's have a different conversation. When it comes to the presence of sin in our lives, we can get so wrapped up with the presence of sin in our life that we miss the presence of our Savior. So concerned about the things that we're doing wrong and whether or not God actually loves us and all the perfection we're not making. And Jesus is lifting our chins and looking us in the eye and saying, hey, I know that's there. Confess it. Repent. I love you. I'm still here. And we're going to keep doing this together. So let's have the rest of the conversation. We can get so wrapped up in the presence of sin that we miss the presence of our Savior. And we can get so wrapped up in the comparison game of measuring ourselves and our spiritual life against the little bit of someone else's life that we get to see. Well, I don't raise my hands like they do. Well, I don't know the scripture like they do. Well, I don't give money like they do. Well, I don't, that is off the table. We can get so wrapped up in this, this ranking system within Christianity where there's points and position and all of this. This is not the Jesus Olympics. There's no podium. There's no podium, there's no medals, there's no points, and there's no group of people with fantastic accents commenting on your performance. (laughs) Well, here he goes, he really needs to land this one. Oh, that stumble's going to cost him. (laughs) Well, we really expected more from her on that. She's really gonna suffer on that. The judges have come back with their scores. It's not enough. (laughs) They've left the door wide open for the Pentecostals to take the gold. Some of you are writing the rest of that sketch in your heads right now. I'm here for it, but that later, okay? Let's stay here. This is not a competition. Our focus is not perfection. Our focus is not beating on, other, on, on beating the other person. And that will actually tear the fabric of our community apart when we look to comparison to try to rank ourselves. Here's what John wants us to get at. How do we know that we know that we know that we know God? Do you want to love people like Jesus has loved you? And is it changing the way you treat them? That's it. It's as simple as that. Not easy. But as simple as that. Has something changed in you? Has your heart moved from this posture of rejecting and ignoring God to start to see a little bit more of how good he is? Are you starting to embrace him? Are you starting to obey him? Are you moving into this life of love because you're understanding how much you have been loved and you want to? It is your desire to do differently than you've done so far. And is it starting to change things? Not are you doing it perfectly, Not, are you doing it as well as somebody else? But have you started to change? And if the answer is yes, then we have that comfort of knowing that we know love because we're starting to show it to other people. And this is actually something that John is gonna tee us up for in the next couple chapters of his book. And so we have to pause the series now, but we're gonna pick this up. And what's crazy is that 
John uses this phrase again in chapter one, verse five. He says, this is what you have heard from the beginning. This is the thing that we had at the very front end of this that I don't want you to miss, that I want you to hang on to after 70, 80 years of following Jesus. This is what I wanna make sure that I get across is that God is light and in him, there is no darkness at all. This phrase, this is what you have heard from the beginning. This is what I need you to get. This is what you can't miss. He brings it back in chapter three, verse 11. When he says this, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We should love one another. If John wants us to take anything away from this book, the if the thing that we need to dig our roots into because it's the source of our life and truth is that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And if there's a then, there's an overflow, if there's a response that comes from that truth, it's that we should love one another and that we actually can. And if we've started, we know that something has changed. And here's why we need to hear this truth today is because over the next few weeks, And by the time we get to the series again in summer, you will have had a million opportunities to fall into license or self-condemnation because of sin. It's gonna happen. You're gonna sin in the next few weeks. Maybe in the next like couple minutes. (laughs) It's gonna happen. And guess what? It's already been taken care of. Now, do you use that as the license to sin? No. Do you fall into despair and self-condemnation? No. You confess, you repent. And you keep moving. You are going to have a million opportunities over the next couple of weeks to compare your spiritual life to somebody else and look at someone and say, well, they're doing it right. And you're either going to strive to live up to their standard instead of accept the gentle yoke of Jesus, or you're going to see that and say, I'm never going to get there, so I'm out. And that will start to disintegrate this community that God has put together as the Hope Collective because we are not here to compete with one another. We are here to support and encourage and help and pick up and move forward together because the mission that God has for us is way more important than everything that would try and tear us away and apart from one another and from Jesus. So how do we know? That we want to love others like Jesus has loved us and it's starting to change the way we treat people. Let's hang on to that truth as we move into these next few weeks. And so what I'd like to do is in a moment, I'm gonna ask you to stand because I wanna pray for you because we need the Holy Spirit's reminders of these truths and we need his help as we move forward because everything in our world around us will work against us. And so we need God's word and we need God's people and we need the Holy Spirit to keep us moving forward. So I invite you to stand and I'd love to pray with you before we dismiss. Heavenly Father, thank you for these men and women, for these brothers and sisters that you call your kids and that we call the Hope Collective. Thank you that you have given us your word and that you have given us one another. 
and you have given us an invitation to be part of the incredible work you're doing in this world through Jesus. We don't want to be naive, God, that there will be resistance as we move forward, that there will be attacks on us when we see the things that we've done wrong and condemnation creeps in, and in the name of Jesus, we pray that you would replace that condemnation with a, a look of grace and a look of love and the tender eyes of our Father who reaches down and holds our hands and says, my dear child, I love you. I know, and it's already been taken care of. I pray for those moments when we are tempted to compare ourselves to one another, that God, the only one that we would look to would be you and that we would lock arms with one another instead of comparing and separating ourselves or putting one another on pedestals, we would cheer one another on, that we would encourage one another to love and good deeds because that's how we know. So change our hearts, God, more and more every day that we would not reject or ignore you, but that we would embrace and obey you and it would change the way that we treat each other and treat the world around us and may the world know by how we love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Love you guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks for spending time with the Hope Collective. If you appreciated this message, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast or share it with a friend. You can also leave a rating or review, which will help other listeners find us online. Thanks again for joining us.